From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is the industrial metaverse, which, unlike the consumer version, is based on simulation and large-scale digital twins. These are familiar technologies to manufacturing and R&D efforts. These large-scale digital twins representing whole manufacturing plants, cities, or other highly complex human systems can provide an interface between the physical and digital worlds that can make the real world work better for its inhabitants. Two words for you, virtual possibilities. My guest is Peter Korta. Peter is the Chief Technology and Strategy Officer at Siemens. Welcome, Peter. Well, thank you, Laurel, for having me. So you have a position at Siemens that requires a direct connection between technology and strategy. How does this help the company, not just innovate internally, but also with customer relationships? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, as a matter of fact, we believe that everything has to flow backwards from the customer, obviously. And this is where we look at how technology can make a difference for the customers we serve today. And uh, so we listen always very carefully what they need, not necessarily what they want. And so we see a profound shift uh, that our customers are not asking for just products, but for solutions. And they're also not just looking for solutions, but they're looking for solutions that help them across the entire life cycle. And as a strategist, usually you just would look at markets and market numbers and everything that's out there. But as a technologist, you can listen carefully and understand what they really need. I can give you an example. Um, trains is, is a fascinating one. Um, the, uh, in the past, it, it used to be that there's a train operator and they just say, you know what, we need a new train. And then they, they tender it. And usually at Siemens, we would have been designing these trains, building these trains and then delivering to them. Uh, and that's pretty much it. But the point is, you're missing out on the entire life cycle. A train usually is being in operations 50, 60 years. So the majority of the value created by transporting passengers or freight is actually during this life cycle phase. And so they ask us, hey, Siemens, you're building these trains, but can you actually help us to be more punctual, more on time, being more reliable? I mean, you, we know it, uh, those trains usually don't run on schedule. I mean, we, we, you know it in the US, we have the same <laughs> issues in Germany. Wouldn't that be cool? And we said, yes, actually we can help you with that because we can actually build sensors into the trains. So thereby we know in which conditions that they are so that we can service them. So that we, for example, a door very often breaks on these trains and we know 10 days before they break that they actually need to be serviced. So that sense, these trains are much more uh, up and running and are providing punctual services. And that's profound shift in technology where digitalization enables you to get into a completely new universe that is now the operations of trains. And that is something a strategist would have missed out because you would have defined the market as, well, you're building trains. But now with technology, you can see that you're not just only building trains, but you help running them more efficiently. I love that example. I think it's a really good one because it actually shows the value to the customer, um, which is the government that buys the train, but then also to the, the rider of the train. So you're actually servicing your customer's customer to help ensure those trains run on time and safely. 
Exactly. And you know, the, the, the great thing about this is, and this is another one, which is about digitalization. And an interesting one is that very often you start with one use case. In this case, it was about uh, that, uh, of course, making those trains being more on time. But then COVID hit, right? And you know what happened? I mean, nobody actually went on mass transit in fear of contagion. Uh, and so uh, therefore, um, the operators ask us, but do, can you tell us of how many people are riding on this train right away? And we said, sure. I mean, we have built in the sensors so we can look at the trains and see their capacity levels. And so this is fascinating. The, the minute you start to connect the real world operations with the digital simulation thereof, you can enable a lot of new service you even hadn't thought about in the beginning. So on to the industrial metaverse. When we think of the industrial metaverse, it looks to create this bridge between the physical and, and digital spaces. So where is this technology now? What are some of those current use cases? And what are aspects that are still in development that we can look toward in the future? Yeah, well, um, I, I really liked your intro and, and, uh, and you said it well. Um, there are these large scale digital twins. This is precisely the way we look at it as well. So um, first off, there's, Suffice it to say, there is no clear definition of what the metaverse really is, right? So there's a lot of imagination in there, which is probably why people get so excited, but also so disappointed by it, because everybody is projecting their biggest hopes into it, but then realizing, well, actually, it's, it's, uh, it's old wine with new skins. But um, in the case of the industrial metaverse, um, we look at it as something where all the building blocks exist today, they just don't work perfectly together yet, but they are becoming more powerful. And hear me out on this. So we get five building blocks that we think are important in the industrial metaverse. The first one is indeed the design. So if you wanna have a digital world next to the real world, we need to design or have a copy of the real world in the digital world. So that's our digital twin say. Then once we have that design, we also want to have it that it behaves the same way in the digital world as it does in the real world. So therefore, now you need to have simulation capabilities. So in terms of physics and thermodynamics and everything, so it does behave quite the same. Then there's the collaboration aspect because you really want to bring people together. There is the photorealistic or the immersion aspect so that it does feel real. And the first instance is really making it as look as, as it is very real. And then the last one is the real-time piece, because think about, let's say, a complex car and think about 20 designers scattered around the world, uh, immersing themselves into that virtual world, seeing the car very clearly in a photorealistic way. But then this one designer may say, well, what happens if I change, for example, the headlight and, and uh, the dimensions would be different? Today, you can't do this in real time because the process and the compute power isn't there yet in order to enable that. You can do some very smaller design tweaks, but not significant simulations in real time. But the good news is with increased compute power that is coming uh, online, either in the cloud or on the edge, um, that becomes really powerful. And so therefore algorithm becomes smarter and becomes more and more and more real time, but still there's a significant time gap. So what I'm trying to say, these five building blocks exist, except they all have to become more powerful and they have to become more connected. 
So earlier you were giving us this great example of how adding some digital capabilities to physical trains will help the trains themselves run better. So when we think about sort of the industrial metaverse and this idea of simulation, could you get into a little bit more of an example of, of say, a car being built? Why is it important that you would have sort of um, this hands-on ability in a virtual world that would affect outcomes in the real world? Well, there's many reasons. There's first off, there is the topic about that you can already get it right in the digital world before you actually build it. And that's that's actually how simulation, by the way, started exactly with cars, right? Because you always had to do the manual crash test, which happened or turned out to be very, I mean, it, it's a big deal and it, it's very costly. So this is why the, um, the, the, the um, simulation started there. And the whole thing is about being faster. Uh, and having more iterations uh, and having more people collaborate and integrate there. So think about it that um, in the past, it would have been just between, let's say, the design engineers, right, sitting together. But um, with collaboration and real-time photorealistic rendering, you can lump in marketing departments that can give you feedback on that. You can lump in the, the, design, the, the manufacturing guys who can tell you that actually is that uh, feasible in terms of can you actually really build it. You can lump in the, the, uh, the workers and see whether they can actually produce and assemble the car. So uh, it really is all about uh, time to market, if you like, um, number one. Number two is, uh, of course, it's really optimized. And then lastly, it's also becoming more efficient because as you can imagine, um, there's so many requirements today. Cars are a great example with regards to mileage and optimization of, of their energy efficiency. And so, of course, the more you can optimize them already in the real world, of course, it will have a profound impact uh, in the real world. Okay, so with data coming in from so many different places with all these iterations as well as um, different inputs, the market is also changing so quickly with consumer demands. So not only do you have sort of these internal demands because you can do many iterations, but you also have external demands uh, on companies as well. So how can the industrial metaverse help accelerate digital transformation for enterprises? Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a very good question. And it turns out that still this digital transformation piece is, is very complicated, isn't it? We are, we are talking this about this now since over a decade. Uh, and, and it's really, um, it takes a long time. And, and to understand that fully, um, let me, let me uh, put one concept out there. That is, um, so before you actually become a fully digital company and transformed, uh, you have to do three things. The first one is you have to digitize, right? So you have to get the things from the real world into the digital world. This is usually the step that takes the longest because the return on investment is not so high because you're running the manual process and the digital process side by side. So very often that requires a lot of infrastructure that you have to put in place, new capabilities. So uh, many companies that we see in particular in the B2B world are struggling with this first step. Then comes the second that we call digitalization. And that is really bringing the different data silos now all together, because usually companies are set up in silos, aren't they? I mean, they are organized by regions, functions, business lines, um, so what, whatever that is. So the power of digitalization is truly horizontal, bringing different topics together, different data points together. For example, in manufacturing, you have maybe just the machine data and you optimize the machine data. 
But the minute you connect it to sales and understanding about what you need to deliver uh, the next day, actually, then it becomes really powerful. So breaking down data silos, and that is really the power of digitalization. And this is where then it really speeds up and accelerates. And then lastly, the example that I gave you was the train. It enables you to change your digital transformation with regards to changing the business model, right? So instead of just selling your product, actually you have a lot of service attached to it and a much closer link to the customer. And this is what we think the industrial metaverse is going to do too. However, it's predicated that you have to take this very first step, right? So you have to have digital representations of your elements, of your assets that are existing in the real world. If you don't have that, that's really tough. But for those, and there's many industries, car manufacturing, uh, pharmaceutical industries, food and beverage, uh, media industries, they are really far ahead. They have these digital assets. And so now building these digital twins, it's, it's for them, it's relatively easy. So with so much computing power required for digital twins and many of these industrial metaverse use cases, how can the metaverse be built in a sustainable manner? Because that is certainly something enterprises are looking toward digitalization to help with. Yeah, I know. Uh, and, and that is indeed, it's, it's a big question. And uh, we always get that uh, question a lot nowadays, <laughs> particularly because of crypto, right? And the cryptocurrency and the whole notion of proof of work and the way it works. And it's very, very energy consuming. That's true. Uh, but I think we are all in agreement that maybe that's not the best value or time spent on, on making this work. In the case of the industrial metaverse, we believe that um, it is actually substantially helpful uh, to have those simulations in the digital world first and then put in the real world. So from the numbers I know, the, the ICT, so information and communication technologies, contribute about 4% to greenhouse gas emissions. Now, there's other studies that I'm aware of that would suggest that up to 40% of these greenhouse gas emissions can be reduced because of the digitalization effect, which we do think actually this is, this is, this is possible. So there you go. So it's a factor of one in 10 in terms of leverage. So yes, uh, there is some elements where you have to invest into, into it and probably create a little bit more greenhouse gases, but the net effect is, is absolutely much, much in favor of doing it. And maybe last point on this one. Uh, the key thing today though is that we need to understand about the carbon footprint that we are leaving behind. And, and that is today, it's a gross estimation. So right today we, we say, well, around about 50 gigatons of CO2 equivalents are being emitted every year, but that's a, that's a simulation, that's an estimation. We really don't know that's, that's, um, that's not, not the real number, but you need to get to real number. And so what we've done is, we created actually a low energy blockchain, which really uses as much energy as two clicks on a web page. And that enables to um, uh, communicate your product carbon footprint between different manufacturers. So that at the very end of the chain, you can actually sum up all the carbon footprint that are on, based on true value so that you know, for example, of how much, for example, you see your smartphone of a, of a carbon footprint it does produce. So that is the step we need to take first. So the baselining of the carbon in the designs before we are actually going then to the reduction of it. There's also something to be said too by having the digital twins in this industrial metaverse uh, opportunity is that then things like trains and cars and other 
large manufacturing facilities could be then made more sustainable themselves because you were able to do it in this environment of simulation. Does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And so, so we tend to think about actually, uh, if, if you like, uh, the green digital twin. So think about a designer today, right? So the, what does a designer do? Uh, the designer usually has a time schedule. Uh, you have to design this product by X. Uh, it, is, it must not cost more than Y. And it has to serve these functional properties in terms of it has to go that fast or it has to be that stiff uh, by Z, right? So that's the way it goes. We think there's now a fourth dimension, and that is the green aspect. So the green digital twin, where you say, and it must not uh, exceed that many tons or kilograms of CO2. And this is really where you have now an additional element of optimization that has to come into it. So it's a trade-off, isn't it? And so that's what, what, what is happening as we speak. And those calculation tools enable you to come to the best trade-off. Uh, before you, as I said, before you even build these these devices, buildings, factories, what have you. So we've gone over some of the benefits of um, digitalization of industrial IoT um, in the industrial metaverse, data, time to market, um, responsiveness to customers, as well as this ability to kind of improve sustainability. But what are some of the challenges? Why aren't we all there yet? Well, I think there are, <laughs> as always, there are many First and foremost, there are, um, of course, uh, the legacy systems, right? So every company has its own IT systems, its own configurations. So therefore, uh, most of the technology that we want to implement is, of course, um, is not scaling the way as, as, as it should and, and could. Second, very often there's even no interface, uh, either from the machine where you can extract the data or from the software where the data resides in there. So um, this whole notion of being open and being able to access other applications data is really a key obstacle. And uh, to me, uh, to sum this all up is really the whole question about interoperability. Um, we just recently launched uh, what, what we call the Siemens Accelerator, which is a digital business platform where we promote portfolio elements, so, so solutions that are truly open, right? Where you have interfaces, so-called application programmable interfaces, so APIs that are open, well described, where others actually can build on top of it and that are also um, very flexible so that you can install them in existing brownfield environments. That is really the biggest challenge in the industrial world. And of course, as you can imagine, there's a human side always to it too, because I think it's human to uh, to be fear of uh, you know providing too much transparency. Oh boy, what happens if others can see what I do? And and so naturally, um, any kind of implementation like that goes a lot with change management and, and bringing different part departments people together and showing them that actually that it's, this is not threatening them. As a matter of fact, it does make them better because they can serve the customer better. And so therefore they stand to have less escalations, uh, more demand, uh, and, and of course, more collaboration with other departments as well. Yeah, so about that change management, um, digital transformation really requires much more of a cultural transformation, doesn't it? So in your mind, even though we've been going through this process in many enterprises of digital transformation for many, many years, this new opportunity with the industrial metaverse, industrial IoT, and, and sort of this um, physical digital transformation opportunity, how does it, how do smart companies just really bring in the people to be part of that transformation so they don't feel so scared and sort of left out? Yeah, 
Well, I think that is one of the toughest questions, and there's there's no simple answer uh, in terms of um, uh, like a recipe or a playbook. Because if they were right, then it would be further along. Uh, but there's a few patterns I would say that that are common, and let me give you an example. Because uh, at Siemens we are also a manufacturer, right? Which is great because we do pro produce, for example, automation equipment. We produce motors, trains, and such. And so just recently, uh, we we opened a new factory, and that was completely uh, digitally designed uh, as a virtual twin or a digital twin, right? And the way we did that was that uh, we included all the respective departments from the very beginning. Uh, and treated it as, as a kind of a change management project, right? Because the minute we built that, that plant uh, or that factory in the digital, in the, in the, let's say the digital world, uh, we looked at not only of how the structure would be, but then where should the machines be, how would the material flow and everything of that. And so the workers were involved in that, right? So that they already knew of what was coming. Even better, they had a say in actually, aha, this is the way the machine operates. Uh, and then all the other departments had their say in the two in terms of the safety department and whatnot, so that, that everybody could see what was about to be built and, and they were heard. You could certainly gone faster even and just build it and then uh, in the digital world and then put it in the real world. But the fact that they included so many different departments made them understand that the bigger picture and was less threatening. And, you know, the greatest thing of all of that was that by the time we, we opened that new factory that, that first, of course, existed in the digital world, and then after we had built it, existed in the real world, that factory was 20% more productive. It saved 5 million uh, kilowatt hours per year in terms of electricity, reduced 3,000 tons of CO2 and 6,000 cubic meters of water. So it's a triple win, really. Um, it is you're becoming more competitive, you're becoming more sustainable, and your people feel more empowered because they had a say in that. So whoever is listening in, I just can tell you, it is worth that effort to go the extra mile in the very early days. Although it feels like you're slowing down, you actually accelerate because by the time you, you build it, you don't need to explain it anymore because everybody is familiar with the concept. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. And obviously the numbers uh, are the proof that you would need for that to just bring everyone along in the beginning. So how, how, how do you envision the evolution of the industrial metaverse and, and what trends and technologies are you excited about these days? Yeah, um, <laughs> we are excited about many technologies, and I could go on forever on this. But but uh, asking your first question or answering your first question is, um, I think for sure. I mean, this is an evolution and not a revolution, right? Um, so uh, you uh, each of these building blocks I told you about, uh, they're going to become more powerful over time, and, and we see this every day. There's Moore's law that, of course, enables us to get more transistors on the chips, so therefore making them more powerful, and so therefore becoming you know more real time or enabling more real-time applications. So that's for sure is going to happen. That's not going to stop. And that is a little bit, you know, more predictable because these parts we know. I think the, the little bit of a wild card that we don't know as much is for sure the whole conversation that we nowadays, of course, have with regards to artificial intelligence, simply because um, you can speed up the design when you think about generative design. So in the past, of course, there's a designer, right? There's a human that does design, for example, an air duct, but usually they have straight lines and they're, you know, they look ordinary as you and I would know. 
But interesting enough, uh, if you put an AI on it, and if you were to say, um, optimize it such that actually the airflow is optimized, you would come up with very different geometries and shapes that really looked like, like an alien, the very, very unnatural. However, they are much, much more efficient in that sense. And so there's a lot like these examples that are happening. Or another one is about uh, the photorealism. Uh, the nice thing about that is with that you can create edge cases, right? Think about you could simulate how it would look like if you were to drive with your car through a volcano or the ash rain that, that comes down, right? That's an edge case you cannot really reproduce in the real world, but you can simulate it quite, quite, quite um, uh, realistically in the digital world. And then you can take that data points and feed it back into your algorithms and see whether your car will be driving, just as an example for illustration purposes. And this you can do for a factory as well. So AI for sure will have a huge role to play in that. And then, you know, um, there is the question about the whole story about uh, immersiveness. Um, today, the metaverse by and large is consumed through 2D screens after all, which is fine. Um, but of course, it would be much more powerful if you uh, if you could, of course, experience it in 3D and if you had your headsets or AR, VR headsets and such, but they're still too heavy. They're still too, um, too, too energy hungry. They're still, uh, in terms of the frequency and repeat rates, you feel nauseated, all of that. So many, I mean, as you know, a lot of money is going into this. And I'm absolutely convinced once this is coming, it has significant implications in the industrial metaverse. Because think about it. You could do an overlay on your glasses with regards to inventory or assembly instructions, or I think in the medical field of where to cut and slice and what you have to do. So there's a lot of very real world applications that can help us make this much, much better. So it will be an evolution, um, definitely becoming more realistic in that sense. Uh, AI is the wild card, um, headsets will be coming. There's many more edge computing and, and such and such, but I'll spare you all these great details. But that's, uh, that, it's, it's, it's there and uh, we are definitely convinced that there will be more digital worlds than the, what, what is there today. That's a fantastic point to end on today. Thank you very much, Peter, for joining us today on this Business Lab. Thank you so much, Laura. It was a pleasure being with you today. That was Peter Corta, Chief Technology and Strategy Officer at Siemens, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Global Director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can also find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Jiro Studios. Thanks for listening.